Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, the Disciplined Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today it is my pleasure to introduce our next guest, Jack Schaefer. Jack is a retired special agent with the FBI who was assigned to the National Security Behavior Analysis Program. He currently serves as a university professor and consultant. He's authored multiple books, including The Like Switch and The Truth Detector, and he regularly contributes to psychology today. His experience with the FBI has given him a wealth of stories, techniques, and examples from investigations and interrogations to recruiting sources to identifying and catching spies. And today I'm really excited for him to share how all of these techniques that he developed in his investigative career apply to all of our personal and professional conversations as well. And it's really cool to listen to him talk about how we can use these techniques to do things like, perhaps surprisingly, develop more meaningful friendships. Or on the flip side of the coin, identify when people may have negative intentions as they approach us. He's also going to share some of his favorite elicitation techniques and provide different examples on how they work across a wide variety of contexts. And I'll talk about the importance of staying within the human baseline of communication so these techniques continue to work without being recognized even by people who have been trained. And for your entertainment, if you pay attention, you'll see where he uses a few of these techniques on me during the conversation as well. So thank you all so much again for tuning into another episode. I hope you get as much out of it as I did. Before we go further, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsors, Humantel. Please head over to humantel.com and check out all of their research, their blogs, their articles and information on where their techniques and where their teachings come from, and then dive into their training and learn how to accurately identify the emotions people are feeling when they're changing and what they likely mean in the context of the situation, all by accurately evaluating and they're changing facial expressions and body language. I can vouch for it. I've taken all of the training myself. I highly recommend it. And the wealth of intelligence this will open to help you build rapport, demonstrate empathy, connect with other people in your personal and professional relationships, I highly recommend it. And when you're there, enter the code INCLUSIVE25 for 25% off of all their online training. Please also check out the International Association of Interviewers at certifiedinterviewer.com. You can go online to check out all of their research and resources. You can find their education calendar, both online and in person. You can look at all the networking benefits and beyond for professional interviewers. And of course, while you're there, please explore the Certified Forensic Interviewer Program. Is that something that you qualify for? Is this something that you're interested in? Does that level of expertise and certification support you at your current or next level in your career? career journey. Check that all of that out at certifiedinterviewer.com for the International Association of Interviewers. And please head over to inquasive.com. And that's when you can learn more about the customized programs that we facilitate for organizations when they ask us to work with their leadership teams, their sales teams, or their HR teams to teach them how to encourage people to share sensitive information under vulnerable circumstances in the face of consequences. You can learn all about the programs that we customize for our clients over at Inquasive.com. Thank you all again very much for being here, for taking the time to listen to another conversation. And without further ado, I introduce to you, Jack Schaefer. Hello, Jack. It is so great to see you. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. I know you're a busy man. You have a lot going on between the work that you do with the university and outside. For those of you that are listening, we're also recording this during the holiday season. So I imagine you have many family obligations as well. So I'm super thankful of, of you spending the time. And I'd like to open up with a question that I honestly never thought I would ask an FBI agent. But having read both of your books, The Like Switch and The Truth Detector, I think this is a place I'd like to start the conversation because honestly, it's someplace that I have struggled throughout my life. And it's something that I don't have a real clear path to help my young son with when he asks me questions about it. So thinking back to your work, what can I or we do better when it comes to making friends? I think we have to pay attention to the, the nonverbal signals initially that tell other people we're not a threat, that we're friendly, that we're open to them. And there's basically three friend signals. The first one is the eyebrow flash, which is an up and down movement of the eyebrows. It's very quick. It's about 1 64th of a second, really quick. 
And with that, it's a long distance signal that tells the other person that we're uh, not a threat. So typically what happens is two people will approach one another and they will exchange eyebrow flashes. That simply says, I'm not a threat, you're not a threat. The second thing we do is we have a tendency to tilt our head to one side or the other as a friend signal. And the reason we do that is because when we tilt our head one side or the other, we're exposing our carotid artery. And that's pretty, pretty vulnerable because if we cut our carotid artery, we're gonna be dead in a few minutes. So what we're telling that other person is, I trust you enough to expose some part of my body that's very vulnerable. And to give a good example of this, if you have any pets, particularly dogs, when you come home and you meet your dog, your dog will sit there and typically greet you by tilting his head one way or the other. All the dog is saying is, I'm not a threat. And when a lot of times the dog will roll over on its back and want a tummy rub. Everyone says, oh, how friendly. No, what the dog is really saying is, I'm exposing the most vulnerable part of my body because I trust you and I know you won't hurt me. So it's a, it's a sign of trust. So we typically tilt our head one way or the other. And the last thing we do is we typically smile. And what happens when we smile is we release endorphins. And endorphins make us feel good about ourselves. And there's a golden rule of friendship that says, if I make you feel good about you, you're going to like me. So if I smile at you, you smile back. We're both releasing endorphins. We make each other feel good about ourselves. And we have the tendency to like one another. And I always tell people these are kind of not unconscious, but semi-conscious signals that we exchange multiple times during the day. For example, if you're going down the hallway and you meet a, a coworker, you typically, for the first time, you typically say, hey, how you doing? And the second time you meet them, you don't say, hey, how you doing? You typically do an eyebrow flash, a head tilt, a smile, or all three. And guys do the chin thing. They'll stick their chin out. And it, those are just signals that we send each other semi-consciously that we're not a threat. So the importance of that is we always want to make sure that we send friend signals to let the other person know we're not a threat. I appreciate you sharing that. And it makes sense. A lot of times I'll laugh in some of the courses that I teach, especially when people are dealing with others who are angry or upset or, or getting elevated. And I'll talk about the importance of smiling because have you ever tried to be angry while somebody is smiling at you? The wrong smile at the wrong time can do it. But to your point, oftentimes that's one of those kind of universal, I smile, you smile, the, the situation starts to feel better. So the nonverbals make a whole lot of sense. If we're approaching somebody, especially if we don't have an existing relationship or a great relationship with them, how, how important is the physical approach as we are looking to engage with somebody in a positive or friendly manner? I think when, we, when we're approaching somebody we don't know, we typically look at the face. There's a triangle of face that goes from the right eye to the left eye, and it goes down to the chin and then back up to the left eye. So we typically focus on the triangle of the face. So that's why it's critical that we eyebrow flash, head tilt, and smile, because we're just letting those people know we're not a threat. But that's only the first step. Now, what do you say after you say hello? That seems to be a problem for a lot of people. So, <laughs> so one of the things you can do, and, and it's, it's very powerful, and it's called an empathic statement. So what you want to do is take what that person said, how they feel, or their mental disposition, and you want to form a sentence that's parallel to how they're feeling, and then mirror it back to them. Carl Rogers came up with this technique. It's very effective. So for example, when I met one of my students on the elevator, and uh, she was smiling, so a smile means I'm happy. So all I said was, you must be having a good day, because that empathic statement reflects the smile. And she says, yes, I just passed a test I studied real hard for. So I took that statement, turned it into an empathic statement, and said, so your hard work paid off. And she said, yes, it did. And so what we're doing is we can perpetuate that conversation by using empathic statements. 
So if you're shy or you don't know what to say to that person, just listen to what that person said. Repeat using a similar language, parallel it, and then reflect it back to that person. They will they will typically acknowledge it, give you an additional piece of information. With the additional piece of information, you turn that into an empathic statement and reflect that back to them. And so that gives you a lot of time to think of things before you say something stupid. <laughs> you know, because a lot of people just say stuff just to say it, and it comes out maybe in their head they think it's funny, but when it comes out of their mouth, it's not so funny. So this, in fact, will give, number one, shy people time to think of something significant to say. So we got past hello now. Which is often the hardest part, especially for me. I feel like I, I laughed when I heard you say say something stupid. I'm really good at that. Like I, to me, I feel like I have an intro into a conversation, but my internal awkwardness manages to come out either in my tone or the words get clipped a little bit as I say them or you know, I'm, I'm kind of building the statement as I go so it doesn't come out the right way. Or to your point, I think I'm being funny, but I'm the only one in the room who thinks I'm being funny. So it doesn't work out well for me in the end. I do really like that approach of work with what they give you. It's just the old focus on what you do have, not what you don't have. If they say I worked hard, one way to listen to that is, okay, she worked hard. Another way to listen to that is how do I use that to continue the conversation? That was a perfect example. Oh, so your hard work paid off for you. Yes. And now it almost becomes, and I can't play the sport, but a game of tennis where they lob something back and we just take whatever they give us and we lob it back in a way that gives them the inspiration to continue the conversation. Yes. It's a very effective technique. So what happens after you say hello? You get through your empathic statements. Now we're stuck. Now what do we do? Well, one thing we can do is we can look for common ground because common ground is a very effective tool to build rapport. So it, I call it you, me, same, same. If And there's three ways you can achieve common ground. The first one is contemporaneous. That means, that's just a fancy word for meaning at the same time. So you attend Western Illinois University. I'm a professor at Western Illinois University. So we attend university at the same time. So that's something we can share camp contemporaneously. And, and another, or you can use it with uh, sports logos, sports teams. And uh, another thing that you can use contemporaneous, I think if you're stuck and you don't can't find a lot of common ground, I think music is probably the best uh, avenue for common ground contemporaneously. You may like country music. I may like rock and roll, but nonetheless, we like music. And if we share the same music genre, then we have a lot to talk about. If we don't share the same uh, music genre, then we, we certainly have a lot to talk about. I don't like country western because yada, yada, too many trucks and mama and drunk people and whatnot, right? <laughs> and grandma got run over by a reindeer or whatever. And you could come back and say, well, I don't like your type of music, because yada, yada. So we have a lot of things we can talk about in music. So that's, I, I call that your fallback position. If you got nothing else, you can talk about music because everyone likes music. Yeah, I like that a lot. And it also gets back to worst case scenario. Why do we listen to music? How does it make us feel? Where does it take us? So maybe you're a rock and roll guy. Maybe I'm a country guy. It doesn't make a difference. But if we can relate to why we listen to it, where is it bringing us somewhere? Is it taking, taking us away from somewhere? Now we can have that conversation. I love the point about what people wear too. And I'm assuming this might make you chuckle as well. And I'd love your thoughts. Hopefully people don't see somebody wearing a Chicago Bears hat and say, so you like the Bears? Well, they're not wearing a Bears hat because they don't like the Bears. So instead of saying you like the Bears, hey, is Fields really going to pan out for us? Are we going to draft anybody on defense this year? Like, ask them a question that is clearly about the Bears that somebody who's watched at least one game will be able to answer and think, oh, you must like the Bears too, and continue the conversation as yeah. opposed to just, do you like the Bears? Well, we call that a conversational hook. So what you want to do is if I wear a bear's cap and I walk into a crowd that I don't know those people, somebody who's a bear fan 
will say, oh, I like the Bears. And somebody who's not a Bear fan may say, I'm a Patriots fan. And so what that hat does is a curiosity hook that pulls people into the conversation. So, yes, we call that a curiosity hook. If you wear a pin or you wear a button or you wear a logo on your shirt, those are all curiosity hooks that cause people to want to be interested in why you're wearing that particular logo or the hat or the sports um, team logo. So that's very important, a curiosity hook. So if you're shy, wear a curiosity hook. Wear something that people say, hey, I noticed that on your shirt. You, you, you like to bike. You like to swim. You like this. You like that. Oh, yes, I do. And the, the added benefit is typically people who like or take note of the logo or your curiosity hook typically like the same thing or they wouldn't even have noticed it. So now automatically you have common ground. You see how that curiosity hook, it's, self, it's kind of a self-selecting tool to get people that share your same views to come to you and talk to you. I love that. And I imagine there's an even more strategic approach to take for people, business leaders, social leaders, whoever it may be, people entering new um, social networks, potentially. I mean that like actual physical social networks, not these imaginary ones online. Um, I'm making a bit of a jump here from reading a few of the stories in your book where in your FBI career, you were creating opportunities for people to want to talk to you. But so being selective about what you wear, the team shirt you're wearing, the team hats you're wearing, where you park your car, the cup of coffee you're drinking, the bag of food you're carrying. Yeah. If you can be intentional about the curiosity hook that you have visible as you are approaching a person or an audience, you can make it easier for them to start the conversation with you. And yeah. as you're saying, even for somebody who's shy or introverted, and I'm not so much shy, but introverted, um, it makes it easier for it takes the weight of having to have the conversation off because somebody else is carrying the torch. Yeah. It's like I've used this in my career. I wear a dog tie, a tie with dogs on it. I, and I know the person I want to talk to is a dog lover. That person will inevitably gravitate towards me to talk about the tie. Oh, you're a dog lover. Yes. I love. Oh, you like dogs too. Oh. And then we have this nice conversation about dogs. So that's another kind of curiosity hook. The second way, other than contemporaneous common ground, is something called temporal common ground. And that's just another fancy word for over time. So I was in the Army in 1972. You are in the Army now. So over time, we share common ground. And I use this technique quite often because I travel around the country. I've been to a lot of the major cities. And if you say, I say, hi, how are you? And you, where are you from? You say, Dallas. Oh, I did some training in Dallas several years ago. And I've got to, you know, go, go through the, the circumstances of that visit. And so now automatically we share common ground over time. So that's very valuable. And the last one we want to look at is called vicarious common ground. That's another big word for living through somebody else. So if you and I have no common ground, I don't like what you like. You don't like what I like. But you say, I'm a, uh, I'm trying to think, I'm a, uh, a NASCAR fan. I don't have, I don't like NASCAR. I don't want anything to do with NASCAR. But, you know, my sister-in-law is a NASCAR fan, and she likes that Stewart guy. I can't think of his name now. Uh, uh, or one Tony of the Stewart. Yeah, yeah, Tony Stewart. Yeah. So we now we share that in common. You see how we can use it. We can always find a way to get common ground. And I car agree. Car dealerships use this all the time, don't they? You go in there and say, hi, my name's Ken. What's yours? Oh, mine's Jack. Oh, what do you do for a living? I'm a police officer. Oh, my brother's a police officer. My, my, you know, down the street, I know somebody. I know this. I know that. So now we have this common ground. So they, it, it's used quite extensively, and it's, it's, it's valuable. Oh, it's super valuable. And it, it's funny that you mentioned the, the car salespeople is in some of my training programs. I'll actually mention that they're a great group of people to practice it with because, you know, yeah. they're going to do it with you. So yes. now you can you can have fun with what you give them to work with. 
you can have fun with working with what they give you. Like they're, they're a captive audience. They need you. They need your attention. They need the conversation. So apologies in advance to all the car sales professionals that might be listening to this conversation, but they create a wonderful practice audience for a lot of the techniques that you're talking about because of what you said. And in fact, I took my kids in to buy a car when they were old enough. And I said, we are going to practice. And so I let them do all the talking. And one of the things, though, that I told them to, to inoculate yourself from some of these techniques, say you think somebody's trying to get information from you, and you, you know that, you suspect something might be wrong. So what you want to do to neutralize that, I, 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 I call it name it and claim it. So the car salesman would try a technique on my son or my daughter, and they would say, oh, you're using the puppy dog technique. Are you using the fact-to-feeling technique? Are you using this to that? And so they go like, well, yeah, how do you know that? I just, I read a lot. I know these things. So, but that helps you name it and claim it, neutralizes it. They can't take advantage of you then. Yeah, they know that it's a, at least a level playing field, if not tilted yeah. in a way that they didn't anticipate. Right. So these, you can have a lot of fun with these these types of things, but you know, the, the thing is that people don't realize they're doing these types of verbal and nonverbal behaviors. Some people are very, very good at it. Good salesmen, they don't necessarily have to be taught these things. They know it instinctively. And some people who are shy and introverted and they're not, they don't interact very well, especially in today's uh, thumb talking world. You just talk on your, com- your, your phone and you don't get to interact with somebody. And then all of a sudden you have to go to a job interview and you have to actually talk to somebody and convince them that you're the person they need to hire. And if you haven't practiced these skills, you're going to be in a tough situation. So how do you practice something you don't know anything about? Well, that's where the light switch comes in handy because it tells you, make sure your eyebrow flash, make sure your head tilt, make sure you smile, make sure you find common ground with your your potential employer. It sure does. And there are times where different behavioral lessons may sneak into some of the programs that I do. And it's not frequent, but I would say more than occasional. Somebody will ask the question, well, what if it doesn't feel authentic to me? It's important to be authentic. And I agree it's important to be authentic. I wouldn't argue that. I would also argue that for behaviors that are generally natural for people, like what you're talking about here, I might be thinking about it. So it might not feel authentic to me, but because the person across the table is used to seeing it, it appears more authentic or more normal to them than I might be thinking. And I would love your thoughts on this as well. I would believe, until maybe you correct me, that those types of behaviors end up eventually putting us in the frame of mind that's more productive for us, that the brain ends up following the behavior. And the more that we model the behavior for the mindset we want to be in, the more the mindset follows suit. Am I realistic in those assumptions or how far off base yeah. might it be? Well, what, what people often ask me or, or make a comment, they'll say like, well, that's being phony. No. It's not being phony. It's teaching you to do something that you did every single day, that you do every single day. You will do every single day. From now until the time you leave the earth, you're going to be using all these things. They are natural things that normal people use. You're not faking anything. It's natural. You just haven't learned it because the way society is set up, you don't have a lot of interactions with people. I learned this in the sandlots. I learned this in the playgrounds. I learned this. We didn't have internet. We didn't have computers. We didn't have message machines. We had nothing. So we had to interact with people. So people in my generation automatically know all these signals. We don't know them. I I think they're more semi-conscious because we've just been using them forever and ever, and they work. So you're not faking anything. And the, the, the example I like to use is I'll go up to somebody and I'll say, well, have you ever been on a first date? And they go, yeah. And I said, well, you make sure your hair is extra special, nice. Your makeup is on nice. You make sure your clothes are clean and you're on your best behavior, right? I said, well, that's manipulation, isn't it? And they go like, you know, they're shy. They go, well, I guess it is. I said, no, think of it this way. You're putting the best you forward. You're not manipulating anybody you're just presenting your best to you 
So when we meet people using these techniques, we are presenting our best you forward. And that's what we want to do. I agree completely. It's And I, I like both ends of the illustration there. On the first one, for some people, it might be more of a formal education and intentional integration of behaviors that others might have learned more informally and display more instinctually. So we just came across yeah. them different ways. Um, and then I love the piece that you said about the manipulation. From my perspective, mani manipulation is a neutral word. It's not positive or negative. It's the inspiration why the goals we're trying to achieve and the techniques we use that put it in the positive or negative side. We manipulate people all day long, every day. And that first date example is a great example. So anyway, people just need to, to realize and recognize I'm not, I'm not teaching anybody something they don't know. I'm teaching people to recognize things they do every day. Now they can intentionally do that to enhance relationships. If I have a person of interest I meet for the first time, I'm really attracted to that person. What do I want to do? I want to use the techniques that will enhance my probability of having or developing a good relationship with that person. And the same is true, whether it is in business, business. whether it is romantic, yeah. whether it is friends, whether it is social teammates, whatever it might be. Yes. And that's why it's critical that people know these skills. And, oh, absolutely. and the, other, the other side to this is common men. They try to steal your identity. They will use these same techniques. So you have to learn to recognize this person, are they up to no good? Why do they want this information? How are they trying to get this information? Why are they being friendly? Why are they building rapport? Why are they doing the things they do? So if you have a, an inclination that that person may be up to no good, you can at least recognize what's going on, name it and claim it, and then you neutralize the threat. And can start making better decisions about what you yes. share, where you position yourself, how you follow yes. up, maybe what you look to verify after the conversation, all those things. Yeah. It's, a, it's like a comprehensive package. For sure. And I'll, I'll throw in a little, a little, uh, uh, another technique that it works very effective for like uh, uh, personal relationships. Say you go to a bar, you meet that person of interest. What you want to do is you go up, you, you initially see the what? The eyebrow flash, long distance. The woman may eyebrow flash you back and then she'll look down, maybe bite the lip. And as soon as she looks back up at you, that's the RSVP that says, come on over. I'm, I'm willing to talk with you. Then as you approach her, of course, your eyebrow flash, your head tilt, and you smile. And now you're kind of stuck there, right? You can't stare at that person. So what you want to do is you want to maintain eye contact, but you want to turn your head. And it's like stretching cheese off a pizza. And what that does is one of the most powerful mutual intensifiers of a relationship is mutual gaze. We look into one another's eyes. And you know what happens phys physiologically? We, we, we uh, release oxytocin. Oxytocin is a hormone. It's called the love hormone or the bonding drug. So what oxytocin does, it bonds one person to another person. So when you meet that person for the first time and you extend that mutual eye gaze, that increases the intensity of that relationship. And, you know, another, we'll go back to dogs is a good example. As, as a dog ever, you know, I always ask the dog owners, has your dog ever just sat in front of you and just stared deep into your eyes? And, and most dog owners go like, yeah, they do that. It's almost spooky. I go, yeah, what's the dog up to? The dog is trying to what? He looks into your eyes. You look into his eyes. You release oxytocin. He releases oxytocin. What does that create between the dog and the dog's owner? A bond. Now, why would a dog want to bond with its owner? food, attention. I got to go out. I want to play. So what that dog does is, is can that makes that uh, psychological connection with the oxytocin for, for survival. And that's why cats are not seen as man's best friend, because cats don't stare into their owner's eyes. Cats do it a little bit differently. They, do, they have an extended blink that they use to create that same bonding, but it doesn't work as well as the dogs. 
So these things work in the human life. They work in the animal world. I mean, they're just common nonverbal behaviors that it's just interesting to see now that people know about them, you can walk through life and add a little color to your life. It'd be like watching from regular TV to 4k just sharpens your view of life. Just that much more to see more in depth of what's going on between people. Yeah. Picking up on some of the nuances and understanding why they're happening, what they're creating. And I appreciate the lengthy illustration there. Thank you. Because when you mentioned pulling the cheese off the pizza, I started craving Giordano's. It's been a decade or so (laughs) since I've lived out there. So thank you for for that flashback. I appreciate it. Um, (laughs) You've mentioned rapport and you've mentioned bonding. Um, Again, I would imagine that often when people think of the work that investigators do in the FBI, they don't necessarily think of creating strong bonds as part of it. But I imagine that actually plays a large role in developing sources and obtaining truthful confessions and establishing the relationships necessary to solve so many of the crimes. Because, again, I would imagine different to what most people might imagine it's really that human intel and the relationships that break loose a lot of the investigations that that your teammates and yourself were involved with. So I would be very curious and grateful to hear what you can share with us about the importance of establishing bonds and developing rapport, especially with people that it might not be on the surface so easy or obvious to do. Yeah, it, typically when you when you uh, talk to a criminal suspect, and they've committed a crime that could put them in jail for many years, if not the rest of their life. They're not going to confess to you unless they like you. We, we confess and bear our, bear our souls to people we like. So what I typically do is spend a majority of the interview developing rapport, talking to them, building, finding common ground, uh, using the nonverbal signals, using empathic statements. And then once you get a bond or a, you build rapport with that person, then the probability increases that they're going to reveal to you what the, the you know, confess what the crime they committed because they like you and they trust you. And that increases the probability. It doesn't guarantee success, but it certainly increases the probability of success. Now, if I'm looking, I worked a lot of counterintelligence where what I would have to do is, is recruit uh, foreign intelligence officers to work for us against their home country. Now, in order to make that happen, would you risk you put your life in somebody else's hands if you didn't trust them? Absolutely not. So we have to spend, in that case, we have to spend days, weeks, months to develop rapport sufficient for them to say, yes, I will risk my life to help you in exchange typically for money or some favors or something they want. So it just takes a while, but we, it is possible and it's critical without rapport building. I don't think we'll, we'll get a confession or we won't be able to recruit uh, a spy. Agree totally. Having never recruited a spy. So let me make that clear. Um, (laughs) But to, to even take it from that end of the spectrum and then bring it back to our daily business interactions, our daily family interactions. So if I'm running a business and I need somebody on my executive team or an employee that works for me to share sensitive information, a mistake was made, something was overlooked, something wasn't done. If I don't have rapport with that person, if I haven't established trust, it's going to be harder for them to tell me. Even within my family, I would love to think that I've got great rapport with my wife and son, but depending on the situation, maybe that level isn't enough that day, that week. So that consistency of building rapport and trust over time can become critical at all levels, in all of our relationships. Based on your experience, especially at that far end, recruiting spots, what are some of the most effective techniques that we can use in our daily lives to help build that lasting rapport over time with people? Once you get that rapport together, then then you have to establish some kind of trust. And trust can be developed in, in numerous ways. But doing what you say and saying what you do, that's a, that's a sign. If I have, uh, I'm in a leadership position and I say something, I want to do it. And if I do it, I want to I want to say it. I want to be that example for other people. And people will look at you and say, "Aha! They're living what their what their beliefs are. They're living what they're saying." That makes you more effective as a leader because once you get 
someone to like you, you know, the, the irony of that thing is if you get someone to like you, they're going to want to do things for you. So if a leader develops good rapport with the, the uh, subordinates, in, in, in my case, I want to do something for that person because I like them. Not because I have to, not because I'm getting paid to. No, I'm going to do it because I want to. And if I want to do it, I'm typically going to do a better job than if I had to do it based on a price, namely my salary. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I can't tell you how many times over the course of a year I'll facilitate leadership programs and I will hear CEOs say that's what I pay them to do. That's what they get their salary for. Well, that might be what we feel like at the top of the org chart, but as we go down the org chart, they don't yeah. recognize that. And that point you made about you know, do what you say and say what you do, so important to the point where sometimes in specific scenarios, we've coached people, give yourself an unnecessary deadline. Tell them you'll have an answer for them by three o'clock Tuesday and then make sure you have an answer for them by three o'clock Tuesday. Yeah. It's just giving yourself that, giving yeah. them the unnecessary deadline and hitting it can multiply that trust factor. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's just uh, a matter of, I guess, paying attention to other people, paying attention to their their needs. And, you know, that's kind of the irony of the whole thing, isn't it? When we want to make, if we want people to like us, we make them feel good about themselves. So when we talk to other people, we want to make a lot of empathic statements. We want to put the focus on them because in, in the world, especially today's world, we think everyone thinks the world revolves around them. And in, in a lot of my uh, presentations, I'll say, well, so you think the world revolves around you? And they go, yes. I go, you're wrong. It revolves around me. So <laughs> we, we kind of float in our little tech bubbles in today's world. And we don't interact with people. So what we need to do is to put the focus on other people. We can, we can do that in many ways. We talked about the empathic statement. Another, another way is through flattery. And here's the, here's the problem with flattery, though. That direct flattery doesn't always work. Because a student comes into my office during office hours and says, Oh, Mr. Shaver, you're the best professor I've ever had in the whole wide world. And I'll say, what do you want? What do you want? You want something because it's not normal. We have a tendency to go shields up when we hear direct flattery. So what we want to do is we want to allow that person to flatter themselves. And we rarely, if ever, miss an opportunity to flatter ourselves. Let's go back to that. Remember the elevator uh, example with the student that smiled and I said, you're having a good day? She said, yeah. And she said, I passed a test you know, that I studied hard for. And what did I say? Your hard work paid off. And what did she silently do? She patted herself on the back and said, yep, my hard work paid off. So by doing that, I did two things. One, made the focus on her. And two, I allowed her to flatter herself. So that increases the probability that she will like me. All great examples and so important. As I was listening to that, catching on the concept of making making it all about somebody else, helping them feel better about themselves. I'm pretty sure in a book I read recently, they that's referred to as the golden rule of communication. Yeah. If, do I have friendship. that right? Golden rule of friendship. There you go. <laughs> we'll make sure we provide links to those books in the show notes of this conversation as well. But, you know, the other thing people do is when you first meet a person of interest, we have a tendency to data dump, tell them all the things we've done, all the things that you, you would like about us. We tend to brag and do this and that and the other thing. What we should be doing is putting the focus on the other person. And what you want to do is called the Hansel and Gretel effect. You want to give somebody a little nugget of what you do. Oh, I did this. Oh, really? You did that. And then one nugget. Then you wait a week or so, throw another nugget out. Oh, you did that. Oh, I didn't know that. So what that does is it increases the interest that somebody will have in you. Because once you data dump, what more can you give them that's interesting? So you get bored and a little boredom sets in and then you got relationship problems. But if you, in order to keep it fresh, you know, even a year from now, 
say, well, you know, I used to do that. Well, really? That's interesting. Well, when did you do that? And then you have something to talk about to keep that relationship interesting. And but you don't want data to done. You want to keep it on that other person. For sure. And that ties back to that curiosity hook that you mentioned earlier. That curiosity often creates motivation to continue to interact, either in a single conversation or over a period of time. If we take that curiosity away, I like the the breadcrumb analogy there. I like that a lot. Um, as we've talked about building trust and bonding and people doing things for themselves because of how they feel, I love that we've tracked so far on the creating the relationship side. But oftentimes, again, whether it's in investigations, whether we're recruiting spies, whether we're running businesses or connecting with customers, at some point, we need those people we're building relationships with to share information with us. And we might often be surprised at how hesitant or protective they are. I think the term I heard was shields up with some of the information that we're looking for. It might seem easy to us, but to them, for whatever reason, it creates more of that shield up response. So I love your approach to elicitation. I do believe that question fatigue is real and questions can be perceived as threats a lot. So how do we begin to balance that? So we're getting the information without necessarily creating that shields up effect. So I'm curious, how do you transition from a lot of these relationship development skills into the intelligence gathering skills in order to complete the mission, which might be recruiting a spy. It might be closing a business deal. It might be creating the strongest bonds or relationships we can. Yeah, what, what we want to do is we want to create an environment that predisposes people to talk with us. And there's, there's, there's a lot of tools we can use, but one of the most powerful tools, I think, is elicitation. Because what elicitation does is it directs the conversation to a topic that may be sensitive to people, but they will be predisposed to speak to you without realizing that they're revealing sensitive information. And there's a couple run-ups that you need before you can use elicitation tools. And we talked about that rapport building, the friend signals, flattery, empathic statement. There's a couple other things we can do. We give in law enforcement, when we interview people, we give people food or drink. The reason we give them food or drink is because when uh, there's two things, one is called reciprocity. If we give you something, you have a natural tendency to want to give something back in return, equal or greater value. So you build in that reciprocity. And Cialdini came up with this the art of persuasion, reciprocity, where I give you something, you give me something in return. The other reason is 70% of all information is shared over food and drink. So we want to be able to give them food or drink. Because think about the last time you shared information with somebody. It was over dinner, over coffee, over something, some food or drink. So that predisposes you to what? To uh, want to speak to somebody. The other one is, and, and I occasionally do this, is I'll take a suspect out on a walk. Let's take a walk down the street, get a cup of coffee. I do that for a lot of reasons. Number one, what do we do when we walk? We have a tendency to what? Share information. We're predisposed to talk to one another. We get to McDonald's. What do I do? We have food or drink. I buy the coffee, of course, because of reciprocity. So you're building in these, these kind of uh, ground rules to introduce elicitation tools. Now, one of the most strongest rule, uh, elicitation rule, is yeah, I, I, let's just talk about the psychological principle behind it, and that is the need for other people to correct you. It is a tremendous need for people to correct you. In fact, why do people want to correct you? Well, because it places you above them. I am smarter than you. I am more important than you. You're, you're not as smart as I am. So there's this tremendous need to correct people. In fact, I, I do it in school all the time. I'll, I'll teach the elicitation technique in class, and it's a senior level class. They're all seniors. And then when somebody says something intelligent, what I say is, wow, that's pretty smart for a, a sophomore to come up with. And, and this one particular girl, she just says, I know what he's doing. 
I'm not gonna I'm not gonna allow him to do it. I'm gonna fight it. So I moved on with the lecture. And then a couple of minutes later, she goes, Well, you know, I am a senior. And I said, <laughs> and I said, Why well, I'm demonstrating to you the overwhelming need to correct. She says, I knew what you're up to, I knew what you were doing, but I, I couldn't let it go. I, I just felt this overwhelming need to correct you. And I so that's powerful. Now, the technique we use to tap into that psychological principle is something called the uh, presumptive statement. I'm just going to make a statement. And you're either going to affirm that statement or you're going to disaffirm that statement and provide me additional information. So you said you grew up in where? uh, What was it? uh, Columbia, South Carolina? I live here in Charlotte now. I grew up in New England. Thank you. There you go. I just, I just did it. Yep. <laughs> I just I just threw out a presumptive and you corrected the presumptive. So and you didn't realize that. So a lot of times in in uh, negotiations, especially, you want to throw out presumptives. Well, I re- uh, your company doesn't uh, have a, a good. Uh, 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 a good schedule for delivery on time. Well, no, no, our schedule, we have this, we have this manufacturing process. We have this, we have this, yada, yada, yada. And they're revealing a lot of information that they, they may not have otherwise given. Or I'll say, well, you're, I understand your company's bidding on the same contract our company's bidding on. I didn't realize that you could uh, achieve a, 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 a lower price with your GNA of 30%. Your, you know, your general overhead administrative costs. And you'll come back and say, no, no, we reduced it to like 9 or 10, 15%. So now I can get a lot of information from you. And, and, and now I can, that information is critical, by the way, in negotiating contracts. Oh, sure. The materials are typically the same. It's a, it's a, gov- it's a general overhead and, and administrative costs that, that drive, that, uh, drive the, co- the price of the contract, the bid. So that's a very valuable information. People don't like to give up. So we can do that. And I was in a, my wife and I were house hunting. And uh, the basement was brand new, just been remodeled. And I thought, geez, I wonder if it was remodeled because it's flooded and they want to sell it because it's flooded. And, you know, they don't want to be subjected to more flooding. I, it's just curious. So if I were to ask that real estate person, does this flood? they probably won't give me a straight answer. So what I did was I walked down there, I made a few comments, and I said, geez, make make a nice office down here and playroom for the kids. And boy, they did a wonderful job remodeling after the flood. And the real say, yeah, they did. And they did make some extra features and this and that. And I go, oh my gosh, they just inadvertently told me that it floods. And my wife and I go like, no, we're not interested. We'll go somewhere else. So there's a lot of things you can do with that pres- presumptive question. And people don't realize that they're giving out that critical information. That, it's such a powerful conversation, allowing people to feel like they're taking control or they're more powerful in the conversation with the correction piece and then adding that presumptive statement so they can either add to it. And I would imagine most people are going to add to it more often than not. And then, yes, without realizing that they're giving you that information, I imagine a lot of times the key is to keep a straight face after. <laughs> so so we keep oh, yeah. what we learn to ourselves when we move on and we don't necessarily give it away to the person that just gave it to us. I would imagine that for a fair amount of people, one of the difficulties in using a technique like that could be, well, I guess laziness would be one, but our own ego. Yeah, ego's a big problem because what happens is we don't want to be wrong. So if we intensely say something that's not correct, we don't like that. We would rather always be right than be wrong. So in this case, you have to suspend your ego because your, your objective is to get information, not to stroke your ego. And in the intelligence world, we should teach intelligence officers these, there's 16 basic techniques with uh, elicitation. And so we would spend four hours teaching it in the morning. And then in the afternoon, we would go out to a public, uh, uh, like a mall. And then 
we go out with instructors and students and I would tell my students, see that person walking over there, see the person in the store over there, the clerk. I want you to get their uh, uh, computer password. And people will give up their password within three to five minutes of meeting a perfect stranger. Asking for their social security number. They give it up within three to five minutes. They give up all this valuable information within three to five minutes of meeting a perfect stranger. Because what that stranger did was, number one, develop good rapport in that short amount of time. Rapport can be developed very quickly. And then introduce elicitation techniques. And then they just reveal the information. So... it's and for people that might be listening and thinking, wait a minute, there's no way someone would give their social security number up like that. They should read your book because yeah. there's actually a great example in there of how it works. So we'll leave it there. But there's there's a great example in there for people who are thinking and, and, that would never happen. And just to back that up, the uh, I was explaining this to my students, the technique, because I teach it in the behavioral analysis class I teach at Western Illinois University. And they said, we want to see you do that. And there was five students in one class that happened to be coincidentally in the very next class, but it was a different topic. And they said, we want you to elicit somebody's social security number. I said, fine, to make it fair, you pick the target. And so they said, that guy that sits so-and-so place. I go, okay. So sure enough, through the the conversation, I got a social security number and, uh, the, these four students or five students, they were they were laughing hard because they couldn't believe that I did it. And, and uh, the one kid looked up at him and said, well, what's the matter? And they said, you just gave him your Social Security number. He said, no, I didn't. And he looked at me and I go like, yeah, you did. And he thought about it. He goes, yeah, I guess I did. How did that happen? And, and they were going like, oh, this stuff's powerful, powerful stuff. It is. And when people understand how to apply it in the context of any given situation in relation to the goals they're trying to achieve with the audience they have available and what's happening around them during that time. It unlocks so many options for them. I would love to ask you in your experience, how powerful slash necessary is it to help people save face if we're looking to ask them to share sensitive information with us? Well, typically, when you use elicitation techniques, they don't realize they're giving away sensitive information. Because elicitation, number one, it's painless. I can use elicitation techniques on you, and you you don't feel any pain at all. Number two, you will like me. Number three, you will give me the information willingly because you like me. And number four, you'll thank me for giving the information to you. And five, you'll probably invite me back. (laughs) <laughs> so you could tell me more privileged information. So it's it's kind of a uh, – there's no embarrassing moments because if there are embarrassing moments during elicitation, you're not doing it right. Okay. Elicitation does not contain typically no questions. They're just, they're just statements. They're just uh, verbal cues that predispose people to uh, – like you, and also to want to give you the information. Almost like saying, now it's your turn during the conversation. Yeah. So giving giving someone the single, now it's your turn, as opposed to to hitting them with questions. And the other thing you can typically do, and we do this during interrogations, but you can do it in any kind of environment where you want people to continue to talk, and that is if you simply nod your head. We live in a turn-taking society. When we talk to one another, we have little cues we send. And one of the most powerful cues to say, it's still your turn, keep talking, is when I nod my head. And that encourages your your thinking to yourself, hey, it's still my turn. I can still talk. So you continue to talk and talk and talk. And the other thing you can do is you can have the verbal uh, nudges too. So you shake your head and you say, oh, okay, go on. Yeah, oh, I see. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Oh, really? And then that just encourages people to give you more information because in today's world, information is power. And in order to get the information, people have to talk. In order to get them to talk, you have to predispose them to talk. And the ideal situation is they don't realize they're giving up 
you know, privileged information. Yeah. Um, recently I had a, a situation, I mean, it's not personal. I really don't mind sharing it, but we, we discovered that I had uh, sleep apnea. And so the original doctor I went to wasn't super helpful. The insurance company wasn't super helpful. I knew neither one of them was giving me the straight skinny, but it only took about a day to get the name and telephone number of the broker who was the go-between between the company and the insurance company and the one that would really make it happen. So now I reach out to him and he's like, how did you get my information? Well, you'll be surprised what people will tell you. And then once I got the machine, I wanted access to all the data, not just the little three pieces it would give me because I want to make sure I'm making the right decisions and doing the right thing. So I get back to the equipment company. They're not giving me the information. So they give me somebody else I can talk to. I get on the phone with her. Next thing I know, she's telling me how to unlock the machine. That's the doctor only code supposedly to get in there and read the data. Well, I switched doctors. So now I'm in a conversation with the doctor and he's asked the new doctor and he's asking me about like the normal information that I would be able to get off the machine. So, well, that's what it's telling me. But once I got into the machine, this is what I learned. And when I said, once I got into the machine, I literally watched him for, I mean, if you're not, if you're listening to this, you won't be able to see it, but I watched him cock his head, squint his eyes and immediately gave me like that contempt look. like, how did you get into the machine? Well, if you use the techniques like you're talking about today in any one of these daily situations we find ourselves in, it is surprising what people will share with you when you create the right environment and use these types of techniques. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I would urge people to learn the techniques. If they don't want to use them, that's fine. But you want to be able to recognize when other people are using them against you. So you can name it and claim it. You say, ah, I know what you're up to. You don't have to tell them out loud, but you can think to yourself, he's doing that. This is a elicitation technique. I'm not falling for it. So you name it, claim it. And then even if you don't like to your point, if you're not going to say it out loud, just create distance. Put time yeah. and space between you and that person and move on to something else. Yeah. Just say goodbye. Yeah. So these are all these are all uh, they're they're simple techniques that you can learn in a short amount of time. And you have to, there is, there is something also called the spotlight effect. We, when we, for the example, if you lie to somebody, you automatically think they know that I'm lying. Well, when in fact, they don't know you're lying. So we have a tendency to be hypersensitive. It's like the old spot on the tie routine. Nobody looks at your tie to see a spot until you tell them, see the spot on my tie? Because you think everybody's looking at the spot on your tie. They're not. They don't care. So that's called the spotlight effect. And a lot of times in law enforcement, we run surveillance. And you'll think, oh, the subject made me. They made me. They made No, they didn't. Typically, they didn't make you. You're just hypersensitive. So when we do elicitation techniques, and we do, it goes back to what we talked about earlier, when we do the like switch techniques and we use elicitation techniques, we think everybody knows that we're using techniques on them. Well, they don't know because this is something I call in the human baseline. What our brains do is we scan the horizon for threats. And when our brain sees behaviors that are not threatening, it puts it in a little category that says not a threat. So when the brain sees that same behavior again, the brain ignores it. So it only pays attention to possible threats. So we're operating in that section of the human baseline where the brain has already attributed that to be normal behavior. So it doesn't pay attention to it. So we're in the baseline. So they Mm -hmm. don't know that we're manipulating them. And I, I made that mistake with my wife once. I let her sit in on one of my lectures. And she's back there going like, mm, yes, I see you have a question. She says, if you operate in a baseline and nobody knows you're manipulating them, how do I know you're not manipulating me? I thought, hmm. I just looked at her and I says, because I love you? <laughs> <laughs> Perfect answer. Perfect answer. Perfect. So what I'm saying is people don't know. And that's why we teach intelligence officers and police officers operate inside that baseline so nobody recognizes what you're doing. 
That's a perfect way to illustrate it. If if we operate, if we if we're communicating with people inside the barriers of where they're used to normally communicating, where they normally feel comfortable, there might be some initial resistance, some initial tension up front. Through a little bit of rapport, through a little bit of empathy, we can start to wear that down. Once to steal your phrase, the shields start to come down. We stay within that baseline, and the information or intelligence that we acquire from people can be astonishing. Yeah, because who do we let into our personal space? People, people we, we trust. trust. And those are the only people that can betray us, right? Are the people <laughs> we trust. Because if we see somebody that's a threat to us, we watch them like a hawk. We don't let them into our personal space. And we wait till they leave. So they're not threats anymore. So our goal as humans is to what? Make people feel good about themselves so that they will lower their shields and they won't be a, be defensive. And then once their shields are down, not just the information we can get, like we said, but maybe more importantly, the goals we can accomplish together. Well, you know, the, under, so the, the underlying goal is you can develop a very rewarding relationship with somebody, either a good friendship, romantic interest, because the trust is there. So how do you say, how do you get close to people? How do you develop that those romantic, long-term romantic bonds is what? Develop that trust. And that's what's going to give you a rich relationship, so in-depth kind of rewarding relationship. And I think that's what we should, our goal should be that. And people say, well, can they use it for evil? Yes, people can use anything in this world for evil. But... You want to use it for good. You want to use it to create relationships, to enhance them in the business world, negotiating. You know, the good negotiation is a win-win. But you just want to put the, put the uh, I guess, the emphasis on the other person and make them feel good. And then that relationship will develop. Agree completely. If For the people that have listened to this conversation and now they're sitting there thinking to themselves, I'm actually pretty surprised that I just listened to advice from an FBI agent on how to build more trust and stronger relationships and achieve better outcomes. Please help us all understand where can people go to find more about your work and your techniques? And if people are interested, I know you mentioned you still travel and do some engagements. If people are interested in connecting with you or finding more about the work that you do now outside of Western Illinois, where can they go to learn more? Well, first of all, I can give them my general email, which is Jack Schaefer, J-A-C-K-S-C-H-A-F-E-R 500 at yahoo.com. And I, I'll answer all emails. The other thing they can do is I blog for Psychology Today magazine on psychologytoday.com. And there's over 170 blogs, short blogs between four and 600 words that somebody can go through very quickly and learn bits and pieces of the techniques we talked about. So if you want to learn just one little technique, you can go to the blog and refresh your memory, or you can find new things that we didn't discuss. And the, the last thing is, you know, the books are available, the Like Switch and the Truth Detector are available at Amazon.com and bookstores and pretty much everywhere. And I'll include links to everything that you just mentioned. I'll put direct links into the book. I'll find the links for the psychology today. Certainly, I'll include your email address there as well for everybody. So thank you for sharing that. And a selfish final thought from myself. I love the title of your book, The Truth Detector, because I feel like so many times when people think about th those with your background and your line of work, so much of it is spent on detecting deceit. Like that's where we're going. But these same techniques, and a lot of times, honestly, even the deception detection techniques are all designed around getting the truth. How do we get the actionable information we need to make better decisions, solve problems, create relationships? I think that the using the phrase truth detector for your book, not that you necessarily wanted my opinion on it, was an awesome phrase to use to help get that point across. So I really appreciated that. Thank you. It's good talking with you. It was great talking with you. Thank you so much for spending so much time with us today and sharing so many insights. I really appreciate it. Stay safe out there. And I look forward to hopefully having another opportunity to talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you. 
Jack, thank you for such a wonderful conversation. I appreciate you sharing your time, your experience, so many stories and examples. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for making an example out of me a few times. Thank you for making me crave some deep dish pizza as well. Might have to book a trip out to Illinois to to satisfy that itch in my earliest convenience. But seriously, thank you so much for sharing how we can apply that all, all of your techniques in our personal and professional lives. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And of course, thank you to everybody for taking the time to listen today. Hopefully you were taking notes as I was during the conversation. And hopefully you have a few new ideas for changing your observations or maybe how you ask questions or engage with people in order to create the relationships and get the information you need to do everything from develop better friendships to achieve your business goals. So thank you all for being here as well. On the way out, we want to make sure we thank our sponsors one more time. Humantel, head over to humantel.com and enter the code INCLUSIVE25 for 25% off of all of their online self-paced training to accurately identify what emotions somebody's feeling when they're changing and what they're likely feeling at any point in the conversation based on accurately evaluating their facial expressions and nonverbal behavior. Head over to humantel.com. Check it out. It's worth your time. Please also head over to certifiedinterviewer.com for the International Association of Interviewers. That's where you can learn more about all of their educational opportunities, all of their networking opportunities, all of the membership benefits for you and your organization. And it's where you can learn whether or not you qualify for the Certified Forensic interviewer designation and what that designation can potentially do for you and your career as well. That's the International Association of Interviewers over at certifiedinterviewer.com. And finally, head over to Inquasive.com. And that's where you can learn more about the programs that we facilitate for our clients when they ask us to customize sessions for their leadership teams, sales teams, and HR teams to teach them how to maximize the value of their observations and encourage people to share sensitive information under vulnerable circumstances in the face of consequences. You can see all of that over at Inquasive.com. And if you're enjoying these conversations about listening and communication and you'd like to learn more about the discipline listening method, the research behind it, the example that go with it and how to apply it in your personal and professional conversations, you can pick up a copy of the book, The Disciplined Listening Method on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Thank you all again for taking the time to join us. We truly appreciate you being here week in and week out. Thank you. Please take the time to subscribe to the show, like the show, share the show, leave your feedback for us. We'd love to know what you like and don't like, what you like to hear more or less of. Please let us know what you think. Thank you all so very much for being here. Jack, thank you very much for a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Stay safe. Take care of each other. We'll see you next time. Thank you.